9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Also coming to you from New York City, we have Dr. Craig Spencer, who is um, uh, the Director of Global Health in the Emergency Medicine Unit at New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center. Uh, He uh, divides his time between providing clinical care in New York and working internationally in public health. You may have read some of his accounts of working uh, uh, during this crisis. He also achieved some note a number of years ago by becoming the first uh, Ebola patient in New York City, thanks to the work he's done in Africa. Welcome, Craig. Thanks for having me. We also have with us in New York... Uh, our regular co-host, Ryan Goodman, who's in Brooklyn, which is like New York. Um, how are you doing, uh, Ryan? Doing okay, David. Uh, you sound very enthusiastic. <laughs> uh, in Washington, D.C., we are joined by Dr. Kavita Patel, who is a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. She also practices medicine. Previously, she was the managing director of clinical transformation at the Center for Health Policy at Brookings uh, she has also worked on the Hill. Uh, thank you for joining us, Kavita. Thank you for having me. And of course, we have uh, our friend uh, of longstanding, Ed Luce of the Financial Times, also presumably at some luxurious location in Washington, D.C. I am indeed. Uh, correct. You, you, you are indeed. I'm going to go around the group and talk about things each one of you have observed Um recently. And um, uh, let me start with Craig and Kavita, since you are our guests, and this is your first time on the show. Uh, Craig, one of the things I was struck by, and I, I, I've, I've been very moved by, by your accounts of, of, of working um, during the midst of this crisis and the toll that it's taking and how little we know. Um, but one thing you commented on today um, uh, in your Twitter feed was that China is stepping up to fill the void left by the United States at the WHO. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the important things about this pandemic, of course, is that it's global. And there are a number of leaders, including the President of the United States, who seem to be inclined to uh, solve it by closing borders, as if that somehow could work in in the year 2020. Uh, and and withdrawing from institutions or penalizing institutions like the WHO. And I'm wondering, what do you think of that particular strategy at this particular moment? Sadly, I think a lot of it is just a distraction to take the spotlight off the fact that our pandemic preparedness architecture here in the United States has been torn apart almost deliberately over the past couple of years. I know this because in 2014, I worked in West Africa during Ebola, I saw the slow response by the US and by the WHO that I've criticized both the US as well as the WHO for the response at that time. What I know though is that organizations like the World Health Organization 
are the best place for us to be prepared to identify, to do the surveillance in places where the next virus is going to come from. And we need to be building them up and not tearing them down. Absolutely, things need to change. Like with any big organization, it's bureaucratic, it's political. But that's because we've decided to make it so. The way that we fund it and the way that it works is intently so. Um, we need to rethink about our investment both our financial investment, but our human resource investment in the organization, because it is our best chance of preventing pandemics. I think that with Trump's decision to defund or withhold funding from the World Health Organization, he's trying to make a statement, trying to uh, penalize it for what they saw, what he saw as this kind of delayed reaction. Sure, maybe the decision to declare a public health emergency of international concern was probably a few days or a week delayed. Yep. Could they have done better? Absolutely. I'm sure that some of the criticism is, uh, that we've been hearing is valid. But again, um, their messaging has otherwise been very clear. They've been um, highlighting the alarm. They've been helping other countries prepare. Um, I think that a lot of this is just a distraction. And as the U.S. pulls away, other countries are going to be happy to, to step in and fill that void where we have this gaping hole in, in global leadership. As you mentioned, this virus does not respect borders or passports or the size of your bank account. This will be the same with future pandemics and future viruses and us pulling back and building up walls is going to do nothing to protect us. No, no, no doubt. Now, there's clearly nothing funny about this, but I can't help but ask, since you've had both Ebola and last week you appeared on the OANN network, <laughs> which is worse between those two? <laughs> well, I think the comments from both of them were basically the exact same. Um, I was just a bad person, a bad guest, and my hair apparently is not so good, as we discussed earlier. So, um, look, I, I understand that people are afraid in times like this. They're getting mixed messages. Just like in 2014, people got mixed messaging about what I or other people who are working in West Africa should be doing. Everyone followed protocols. We did what we were supposed to. No one else got infected. Everyone else was safe. Um, I hope that now the media is doing a better job of highlighting the role of physicians and public health advocates, doing a better job of putting physicians and public advocates kind of out front so we can explain what is happening and hopefully take more time on TV and on radio than people that are spewing false political information that doesn't have a role in the public health response. And indeed endangers people. Absolutely. Uh, Kavita, um, you've, again, have an interesting background akin to Craig's and that you're both practicing physician and you've been deeply involved in several aspects of the policy world in Washington. One of the things that strikes me and listening to what Craig has said and written and what you have, have written um, is how little we know about how to deal with this. Uh, it's not to say there are a lot of things we knew that we should have done that we didn't do, but, but there are areas where our knowledge um, uh, has had gaps and, and we've learned a lot. What have we learned in your mind over the course of the past two months that might change the course of treatment or improve the course of treatment for people out there? I know you've been giving some thinking to that because there, one of the things about this, this, this crisis is it's, it's, it's taken an enormous emotional toll on those who have the disease who are then forcibly separated from their families. So 
what, what, are, what are your thoughts, Kavita? Yeah, and I'm an internist, so I, I there's a joke in medicine. You know, if you if you're in kind of the midst of a crisis, uh, you know, you'll have a surgeon who's trying to cut something out. Uh, you'll have an ER doc who's trying to intubate or put a you know do some sort of procedure, and you'll have an internal medicine doc like me who kind of scratches and thinks about things for a long time. And that's kind of what you see with COVID. You see a lot of doctors. Um, like myself, who have been pouring through these pages of, you know, World Health Organization data, CDC data, trying to stitch together, what does this tell us about how the human body has responded to it? And I, I would say things that we know now that we did not know 90 days ago, um, number one, young, healthy people can get this because I think there was a pretty significant kind of statistical wave of Really old people, young people seem to be, quote, protected. Number two, the asymptomatic carrier aspect certainly was not as front and center, but that has to do with the fact that we just weren't testing the way that other countries were testing. Um, and, And then number three, I think that we're learning that our kind of tried and true methods of dealing with people who have this kind of respiratory distress syndrome that they presented to the hospital with might not be the best way to manage them. And in fact, maybe a more conservative way of managing them in the hospital might actually be beneficial. That's, that's the clinical side. I also think that as public health and kind of I have a degree in public health, and I think a lot of what we learned is that it kind of comes back to basic elements. Like I used to do contact tracing um, for multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, like in Portland, Oregon, like on the, the streets in Skid Row. And there's aspects of what we had to do back then, 20 years ago, that we're going to need to do today and we should be doing. And I'm actually, a lot of the conversation appropriately is so is about testing. I think that we are vastly under capacity to actually do tracing. And the tracing element to me is what keeps me up at night. So that's something we wouldn't have thought about 90, 90 days ago, or I would not have thought about 90 days ago. Although did, we do seem to be making some progress in at least that discussion, yeah. Governor Cuomo yesterday announced a, a program with the support of uh, uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies uh, to upgrade the tracing capability in New York, probably from 1,000 people to three or 4,000 people. And so I guess I, my only problem with that is that I'm from Texas you, you go, or let's look at Georgia, which is going, I would say, the first natural experiment and, you know, what the heck can go wrong when you do some of this. Like, the, we've got a lot of parts of the country, and they happen to be part of the Bible Belt, kind of the Southeast Trump country, where we don't have that capacity. And these are states that did not expand Medicaid. These are states that decidedly did not do public health investment. So, you know what, New York, God bless New York for having Governor Cuomo and having proactive philanthropy. And I would say the same for Newsom, but not most parts of the country, Dave. I mean, I'm just very concerned that we are going to have these hotspots and they're going to be highly correlated with the fact that we didn't expand Medicaid and that you might be black in one of these cities. And to me, you know, that's blood on people's hands and we need to take it more seriously. No doubt. And also, you know, as we look at the, the curve for the country, while well, we see New York having sort of turned a corner, we we see the rest of the country having plateaued because other states are producing more victims, mm-hmm. because other states are producing more, more deaths. Let's continue on the sort of uh, opening tour of things that, 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 that you folks have been writing and thinking about, and then we'll 
get into a bit of a more open discussion that that leads out of all of those observations. Uh, Ed, you had a column today in the Financial Times that talked about something that the president um, was talking about last night and and was a little you know, uncomfortable talking about, and that is this idea of the second wave. I, I found, I you know, I've watched a lot of these, you know, 5 or 6 p.m. Um, dog and pony shows that the White House has put on, and I found them very uncomfortable. But for some reason, I found yesterday especially uncomfortable, because when Dr. Redfield from CDC came out and he was asked, you know, what did you say to the Washington Post about the second wave? Uh, and he said, well, they they quoted me correctly. And then Trump was like, but it was also wrong. And the headline was, and he was browbeating her, him and he was browbeating Dr. Burks. And it was, it was, it was, it was, it was really like he was trying to fit kind of square pegs of fact into the round holes of his political future. Um, and obscured in all of this is the reality that I think everybody expects a second wave and that we've had experiences in the past as in 1918 to pick one example where the second wave was worse than the first wave. And as Dr. Redfield said yesterday, um, the second wave is likely to come with a wave of flu, which is going to stretch the capacity of hospitals to deal with it. It also, by the way, and this was not discussed anywhere, is going to come after four or five months of some of the worst economic crisis the United States has seen since the Depression. There are going to be a, a lot more people in November who are off health care, tens of millions more, and who are impoverished. Anyway, you wrote about it. Talk, talk, to, talk a little bit about what your perspective was. Um, and so Trump, you know, clearly has one thing on his mind, which is getting reelected in November. Um, and the economy, in his view, has to be fully reopened uh, or near full capacity and the stock market has to be roaring again for that to happen. Um, and anything that gets in the way of that um, is a blockage to his overriding goal. Um, and that includes scientists. So you mentioned uh, Robert Redfield. Um, you know, making a commonplace, commonsensical, um, but expert-informed um, uh, probability about about the fall and this winter having a second outbreak. Um, that that's unacceptable. Um, so he was essentially gagged and and kind of semi-humiliated. Fauci too. Um, there's only one government scientist that's doing well, and that's Deborah Burks. And I think really she has discredited herself by saying going way too far. Um, in saying things uh, that um, that Trump wants to hear. Fauci has, has kept the line. This is the same day yesterday that Rick Bright, the government scientist in charge of the search for a vaccine, the most important, arguably the most important role of public policy of any government, um, uh, was basically fired or removed from that post um, because he had questioned the um, merits of promoting hydroxychloroquine um, uh, at a time when all resources and efforts should be devoted towards um, uh, the search for a vaccine. Um, so what we have amongst government scientists Incredibly important role at any time, and including you know the time when Craig was discussing, you know when pandemic units were being set up, but um, but not 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 day to day required. Um, 
the, the scientists find themselves in the same position as the intelligence community, which is they're scared of saying things that are not going to be politically well received. There is a chilling effect on the neutral advice that is absolutely critical to the United States being able to flatten that curve and being able to minimize the chances of a second outbreak or a high mortality rate coming from a second outbreak this fall. Um, so we have a, a system crisis um, that, that's quite profound. And, and um, you mentioned, you know, New York uh, as, as um, turning the curve downwards, but it's only plateauing elsewhere. Well, that plateau might, might, might look good three, four weeks from now. If, if states like Georgia and Tennessee and South Carolina um, continue to open up against any epidemiological advice. Uh, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I can understand clear communication when I hear it. Um, my, my great fear here, and I, it's not fear, it's, it's my uh, um, uh, very obvious uh, observation, is that that advice is now being stifled and to some degree gagged. Um, and so Trump's psychology, the, the, the guy needs to hear good news and, and um, he, he needs to hear what serves his um, purposes. Um, Trump's psychology is, is threatening us all. Well, I, I think that's true. And Ryan, um, I've, I've seen, uh, you know, in, a, a number of statements from you uh, by social media in the past day picking up on this case of, of, of Dr. Bright. I also note that this afternoon, Dr. Bright's lawyer has come out and said that they're going to file a whistleblower report uh, within HHS, and they're actually going to press this issue that he was fired for essentially trying to tell the truth. Um, I would say, you know, by the way, that this comes in the context not just of the daily brow beating or the, you know, what we saw yesterday. Uh, there was absolutely appalling um, uh, uh, set of uh, uh, tweets, you know, this guy Michael Caputo went over to the to HHS and and is now the spokesperson. And uh, you know, he was tweeting things like on March twelfth, sure, millions of Chinese suck the blood out of rabbit bats as an appetizer and eat the ass out of ant eaters, but some foreigner snuck in a bottle of the good stuff. You know, I mean, he racist stuff, ignorant stuff, saying that the Democrats wanted. 100,000 people to die so they could win in the fall. Um, and, you know, and then on top of that, of course, we also have had the story that, you know, uh, Secretary Azar put in charge of his, his uh, coronavirus efforts, um, someone whose last job was breeding labradoodles in Dallas, Texas, um, again, because they were prioritizing loyalty over science. And I know that this kind of enrages you, and I'm trying to wind you up so that you can express yourself fully. Just to play off of a few of those pieces, um, I also think that other revelations that came with this that tie it together is not only the removal of Dr. Bright, and then the reason we know that is because he is a, seems to be a whistleblower and issued this multi-paragraph statement about what was going on inside uh, and why he was pressured to, not pressured, but forced out. The same article on Secretary Azar is in the Wall Street Journal, 
based on dozens of officials basically throwing him under the bus, but maybe he needs to be thrown under the bus if what they're saying is true about how he's grossly mishandled the process. But, you know, I think there are two things about that particular piece. One, it sounds like, you know, according to the offic- those officials' story, Azar didn't really tell the president what was going on. Azar didn't tell the president, Azar told the president that he had everything under control. But we actually know that's not really true, uh, that Azar had warned the president in two phone calls in January 30th and another one in uh, mid-February that the disease outbreak was going to be potentially severe and the president dismissed him as alarmist. And then the other piece in in the Wall Street Journal story that is buried, and it could have been the headline of any other article, was that we learned for the first time that Trump in his conversation with Azar threatened to fire the CDC director um, of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases in late February because she had told the media that we needed to be worried and Americans needed to start to prepare for, quote, significant disruption to our lives, end quote. And that's when Trump was rattled, was worried that that would rattle the stock market. And as now we've learned for the first time, threatened to fire her uh, for that um, offense. So I think these all um, come together. Another, just one other piece, just to kind of tie it back in um, a little bit here with what was said before by Craig on the WHO. Just to want to bring it back to Craig and Craig's writing on that as well. I thought something that's remarkably conspicuously absent from Trump's criticisms of the WHO is he actually hasn't in the two major statements he made criticized them for their delay on calling it a pandemic, which is really odd because that's the one low-hanging fruit. Um, that you can <laughs> criticize them for. There's something that they did wrong. They seem to have dragged their feet on that. But the other story that broke this week is the Washington Post one that we had multiple CDC officials embedded at the WHO reporting back in real time to uh, Azar and others what was going on. And the last sentence of that Post piece says, quote, information about what the WHO was planning to do or announce was often shared days in advance, end quote. So even this criticism, I think, of the idea that they were slow rolling things, the Washington Post story seems to suggest, well, we actually kind of knew it. Um, It's not a real criticism that they can actually air in a certain sense. So I don't know, Craig, if you want to pick up on that um, or uh, perhaps offer the response of somebody who's, you know, on the front lines dealing with this every day and, has to deal with these realities in Washington, and do they seem remote? Uh, does this seem like a discussion uh, that's at thirty-five thousand feet when we really need to be focused on on PPE and other kinds of things? Um, uh, or or is it as galling as it might seem to be? It's galling on all of those levels. Just to pick up a little bit on that. Yeah, the same day that the World Health Organization declared a public health emergency of international concern, I think Trump was in my home state of Michigan at a rally saying that we've only got five cases here, basically saying this isn't going to be a huge problem. So if anyone is actually downplaying the this being a pandemic or being a huge uh, contagion risk, like it wasn't the WHO that day, it was our own president. In terms of whether it's galling for me working in an emergency department and my concerns about PPE, all this, absolutely, we lost all of this really valuable time for us to get ready. The reason that people are working right now without personal protective equipment is because we spent over a month 
talking down or you know belittling um, the WHO in China, not preparing for my colleagues to have personal protective equipment, not preparing for patients and people to have testing. We wasted all of that time. And unfortunately, we're continuing to do the same thing, right? Like we hear so many people talk about social distancing and why it's so important. It's important to stay at home so we stop the spread of the disease, but it's also important to buy us time to do those things that we weren't doing in February, we weren't doing in March, to get the testing, to get contact tracing, to get a real public health strategy in place. And we're just not doing that. Testing is plateaued. We're not, in many ways, we're not much better off than we were a week or a couple weeks ago in terms of being able to open back up our states and our society. It's galling because I go to work and I hear of colleagues all throughout the city, all throughout the state, and all throughout the country that still are reusing N95 masks for over a week when they're dirty, that still aren't able to test themselves or their colleagues if they think they've had infection are still sending people home that are likely positive and unable to give them an answer and saying, well, go home and isolate yourself for a couple of weeks because you probably have COVID. Like all of this is representative of a failure that didn't happen in China or in the World Health Organization. It's a failure that happened here with this administration years ago, pulling apart, you know, threatening to take away WHO funding really undermining the CDC, undermining and underfunding state and local health departments. And then once we were presented with this, this pandemic, that again, as it's been alluded to, like we knew that this was going to be an issue. The, 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 the priority was really underplaying how bad it was going to be and focusing on the economic impact. By not focusing, not prioritizing from the beginning, we are weeks and months into this and we're still fighting and scrambling for essential things that the greatest country on earth should have had uh, many, many, many months ago. Yeah, no question about it. Now, you know, Kavita, I think uh, as you look at this, um, not you, of course you're a doctor, but you know the Washington policy scene as well as anybody. You've worked in the White House. You worked with Senator Kennedy as kind of the, the godfather of healthcare policy in, in, in the United States over the past couple of decades uh, you've worked within the think tank uh, community. Um, and, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that every day there's a bunch of op-eds that say, picking up on the things we've talked about here, uh, the president should tell the truth. The president should embrace science. The president should hire smart people. The president shouldn't have undone all of this stuff. And I think, you know, it's kind of like a doctor who's dealing with a patient and saying, you know, we wouldn't have a lot of these patients' problems if the patient didn't weigh 350 pounds. But the patient weighs 350 pounds, and the president's not going to fix those things. And we face a second wave and the continuation of this crisis. And I wonder what the practical policy solution is. Leave it to the governors, get the governors together in new kinds of coalitions, find other, you know, how do you, how do you deal with it when the most important part of the policy community is shut down or doing damage and we're not going to fix it for the next six months? Yeah, no, I, and, and, and I have to, I can't, I can't help but say Alex Azar is a friend. I, I worked with him when, when he was in the Bush administration and I know for a fact that yes, there is a lot of things that someone can argue he could have done differently. He absolutely was on the right side of trying to actually understand the intelligence he was getting, 
and I think trying to protect his own people. Where I do think there were missteps, to be honest, though, getting to your point, David, for example, the FDA did not authorize emergency use authorizations for lab testing until late February, way too late. I mean, we could have had a lot earlier development of, you know, 10 core academic labs activated. So to your point about, are we going to continue to look to the president for leadership and kind of reflection of what I think any president before him, Republican or Democrat, would have done? No. Um, I'm not even sure I can look to Congress, frankly, between Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi and kind of a logjam that they have on the House and Senate. So unfortunately, it is left, not just to the governors, but if your governor doesn't happen to have the kind of capacity and wherewithal and a spouse who can get you 500,000 tests in South Korea, it goes down to the mayor. And if your mayor doesn't have it, like the mayor of Las Vegas, who feels like opening casinos is a good idea then it comes down to the private sector in the form of like businesses and arguably Craig's employer, you know, New York, you know, you've got large health systems that are active community hubs. So this to me as a policy person who's gone through four administrations, this is definitely kind of now we're left to our own devices and we have to own it, whether we like it or not. I don't like it. And so the solutions that need to come shouldn't be, you know, should, should, could, would, it has to be, here's like what we know today and here's how we practically need to solve for it. And the private sector, I'm a liberal Democrat. I think there's room for less government in places and more private sector, which might shock some of my Democratic colleagues. But I would also argue this is a, this is an opportunity for Joe Biden to kind of actually step into the conversation and illustrate what would happen if he were commander in chief today. And I can tell you, having talked to employers, states, cities, they're desperate. Nobody has a playbook for this, and they're all looking for solutions. So everybody is scratching around for something. And I I actually, you know, I think you've had great podcasts, great commentary that have offered insights into it. And my only ask would be, you know, I'm hoping we have a different administration come January, come second wave of covid I hope that we have a new administration that can tackle this from day one. And, and I hope that we also have some treatments and a vaccine that we can start to offer in 2021 as well. But that's my only hope for how to find a solution. You know, it's interesting, Ed, um, listening to Kavita, and, and, I, and I haven't really thought about this before, but one of the things that we, we're quite possibly going to come up with is we're going to have an election on November 2nd, which is sort of right at the beginning of when a second wave will happen. Whatever you may say about the Bush administration, um, one of the great things the Bush administration did was that in 2008, they got together with the Obama administration or the incoming Obama team and said, you know, this is a crisis. We need to work together on this. We will communicate with each other. They started communicating with each other in September. Yep. And when the when the um, uh, election took place, they worked together. Hank Paulson worked together with the incoming treasury team and so forth to, to do a handoff so we wouldn't have three months of dead air. And I'm wondering, you know, you're not going to get that leadership from Trump. Ed. I mean, do do you think, I mean, Biden's been a little, I mean, he's the candidate and he said a lot of good things and he's surrounded by people I have a lot of faith in. We've had some of them on the show, but he's been a little quiet. He's been a little, 
is been a little passive. And I just wonder if the, if if we need the opposition to step up and and almost require that kind of transition, or if we're going to lose November, December, January, February, March, you know, as we do this transition, right at a moment of great vulnerability. Um. You know, I think there'd be plenty of people in the Trump administration who would like to behave as the Bush administration did towards uh, the Obama administration, uh, the incoming Obama um, people. I mean, Steve Mnuchin, I think, is a, a well-intentioned um, um, a human being. Um, uh, he's incidentally, you know, being advised um, um, by Hank Paulson. You know, so he's in that kind of crowd. But I just don't think um, Trump would for a second permit that the kind of climate where you could uh, you could t- treat with the enemy. Um, I just think that goes against every grain, every pore in Trump's skin. Um, so I can't see that happening. I can see Biden feeling his way towards a better way of breaking breaking into our consciousness. You know, he is, as we've discussed before, David, he's stuck in his basement. Um, and, you know, pol- politics is a contact sport and, you know, there aren't going to be rallies. He's not going to be able to um, to hold rallies. And even if he were, I'm sure he'd be advised against it. It would, it would just look bad. Um, there probably isn't going to be a physical convention either. It's going to have to be mostly virtual, most likely. Um, so he's going to have to think of ways of influencing this debate beyond the sort of traditional things a, a, nomin- a presumptive nominee does, which is rolling out, you know, a running mate. And stuff that will get you 48 hours of news um, is, is, is not going to be enough in this cycle. Um, I've heard some suggestions that um, he could name, um, you know, a shadow cabinet, as we would call it in Britain. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. I and mean, Tom Friedman had a somewhat contentious column that said it should be full of Republicans, which is, I think, you know, pro- probably not not the, the kind of medicine America needs right now. It's it's been punished enough. Um, so he'll feel his way, and he's doing a lot of local broadcasts. He's doing late night shows. He's doing softer stuff where um, his sort of more avuncular. Uncle Joe um, side comes through. And I think that sort of empathy that Biden has is, is very much in demand uh, amongst public um, officials, amongst, uh, amongst our leaders at a time like this, and will continue to be in demand. Um, but, but I'm sorry to say, I don't think he would or his team will get the slightest shred of help from the Trump administration um, before or after the November 2nd election. Well, you know, Ryan, you know, it strikes me, pick, just picking up on this, and and I'd like to be a little prescriptive, and what can we do in the last five, five, ten minutes we've got here, is, um, you know, when I, I was talking to a very sort of canny political observer uh, yesterday and talking about this quality of Biden's, which is kind of laid back uh, at the moment, and he said, well, you know, there's an old saying in politics uh, if your opponent is committing suicide, let him, you know, and, and so, you know, I understand politically, if Donald Trump wants to get up every day at six o'clock could go in the air and behave like a madman and show that he can't really read and that he's got some ADD and that he's not very nice to people and show every single day. And this is really kind of remarkable because between the time that we record this, uh, which is at 
you know, five o'clock on a, on, a, on a Thursday afternoon and the time that people hear it tonight or tomorrow, the United States is going to pass 50,000 deaths from this, of which at, at least 90, 90% might have been avoidable. And at no point in any of these two-hour broadcasts has the president of the United States shown one shred of empathy for the victims, which is stunning, right? So if you're Joe Biden, you could sit back. But the problem that we've got that we're talking about here is a leadership problem. And the question becomes whether there is an obligation for a Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi to do what Governor Cuomo is doing. And Governor Cuomo today went head head, head first into Mitch McConnell, you know, who said, we're not going to go and bail out blue states. And Governor Cuomo pointed out that the United that, that New York State contributes a net $140 billion into the federal economy and that Kentucky, McConnell State, takes that much out or more. You know, so there's some leadership there. But the question is, is this a special moment for a candidate like Biden where he's got to step up, his people have got to step up, and they've got to play a different kind of role, not just candidate, but leader? Um. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, and I'm not sure it's, it might be above my pay grade in a sense, but I do I just think want everybody to know that Brian receives no pay. But I do think that um, it's a time for leadership. And I do think you can also tell that there's a little bit of an inkling of something coming out of uh, President Obama in the last few days, uh, says, saying things like, without a, con- a coherent national response, comma, da, 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 and he's, that is a serious critique that's coming out slowly but surely. And I, the funny thing is, I was also going to go where you went, David, which is to say, I think Biden has this other asset, which is empathy. Um, and having suffered the loss that he has, the losses that he has suffered personally in his family, he connects on that level, he will have a time for that. Uh, the nation is going to go through trauma and he is a leader for that moment. And I think nothing can stop that from happening um, at a natural point. And so when he comes out in that way um, and maybe doing it at the retail level, but then it'll be broadcast nationally. I think that's another form of leadership that's coming. But in the meantime, like you said, uh, from the person you were speaking to, I'm not quite sure what the political advantage is. There could be some loss to Biden because right now he's riding pretty high. He's doing pretty well in the Rust Belt states. The president is imploding. Uh, Red states are now going through some pretty serious times with coronavirus. And I think people, maybe this is my optimistic side, are searching like crazy on the internet for real information that can save their families' lives. And that means maybe going beyond the... um, uh, bubbles, information bubbles that there otherwise are in. Um, and the polling seems to suggest that to some degree, Republicans doing an uptick towards recognizing the severity of the risk and such a tiny, tiny majority. Is it like 12%, I believe that want to be anti lockdown? Um, despite all of the effort by Fox news to, uh, you know, raise that number. So now for Biden to do it now, why do it right now? Biden has his brand. I think that's the other thing that I've recognized over this period of time is that brand is important for that leader. He can save it. Um, The longer that he persists in this process down the line to November with his brand intact is also better for him, I would think. 
Okay, so let's just, you know, do that impossible thing that we try to do sometimes on the show, which is when I say, well, we've got five minutes. So in a minute, you know, answer this impossible question. But, but, but let's focus on this issue of what can be done that will actually get done as opposed to what can be done that we wish would get done. Um, and, 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 and by that, I mean, you know, are there people out there who could do things? And I'm going to throw out a suggestion that you, Craig, may want to pick up on, but you can toss it aside and pick up something else. And that is, as we go into the later part of this year, we, one of the issues we've got is, you know, how are, how are we managing this? But this is a global pandemic. This is the area that you, you know, you've been dealing with. And so far, Latin America and Africa have not been affected by this, except, of course, you know, hydroxychloroquine, as as Laurie Garrett pointed out on one of our shows, really important there for other things. And it's getting bought up by rich people in the United in, in, in the North who can't really use it. But if if this thing starts to rage in Africa, or if it rages in Latin America, then that second wave is is even more likely to come. You know, are there things that we need people outside of the U.S. to be doing, you know, on, on this realistic wish list? Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something I always want to talk about. We focus on this pandemic in the United States as if it's only localized to 50 states. We don't talk about Puerto Rico, which has one of the largest percentages of elderly population in the U.S. and one of the weaker healthcare infrastructures in the country. We don't talk about all these other parts of the country. We don't hear about them, even though they're also impacted. But internationally, the impact is going to be huge in the places that I normally work. Uh, I've, I'm on the board of um, an organization based in southern Burundi, a small country in East Africa, with some friends that run a hospital down there. Talking to them, they have running, running water, so they're lucky. They have maybe a couple days' worth of gloves. They have zero ventilators. They have no intensive care unit capacity. They don't have access to a lot of the kind of basic, simple, life-saving medications this is a population that sure is a little is, is younger, but also has a higher prevalence of HIV and malnutrition and other things that will likely dramatically increase the mortality from this disease there. We don't know a lot about the numbers. Burundi says it has 10 cases, for example, and one death. It's likely many magnitudes higher than that. Same in many other places that I've worked. The impact is going to be huge. I know maybe it was yesterday or two days ago, Trump offered as the, quote, king of ventilators to send some to Africa. Okay, well, that's nice, but there's not a lot of trained physicians that actually are able to use them. A ventilator isn't just an on and off. It requires some pretty specialized care. And I, I talk about this all the time. When I was treated for Ebola uh, in New York City, the one hospital where I was treated had more physicians on staff in the three hardest hit countries, Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone in West Africa during Ebola. So it's not just the king of ventilators sending ventilators. It's not us just sending money or even supporting the WHO. It's recognizing that a public health threat anywhere is a public health threat here in the United States. It's going to be true for coronavirus, whether we bring down the numbers in the next couple of weeks or next couple of months, as long as this virus exists in Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia and South America, we're still going to be vulnerable. We'll still get infected and we'll still have a bunch of deaths here. Yeah, real a real important point. Kavita, again, if we could focus on things that we might hope for from leaders someplace in lieu of having actually a president. Yeah, I'll I'll kind of do a little bit of a build on I can't I can't follow Craig because that's so compelling. So I'll just do a little bit of a build on the theme. 
Um, global supply chain. I don't think I've ever seen a case where we have acknowledged the weaknesses in our dependency on an incredibly complex global supply chain. So we need to have through this like cobbling of regional governors and whatever leaders we can cobble together, we need to have a much more federated, but not through the White House, a federated approach to deal with kind of not just wave two, I would argue we need it today because we're still short on reagents and pipettes and vials and PPE. So we should come together and create, you know, kind of the most amazingly large Amazon Prime account possible so that we can buy this and not pit ourselves against each other. Because I, I talked to someone who runs a hospital lab today and they said, yeah, we're like waiting to outbid a neighboring hospital to get enough to run on our BD machine to process all these labs. And that's April 23rd, 2020 in South Carolina. That's crazy. And, but that's where we are. And I think we can actually try to do something to head that off. Okay. Ed, do you have something to add on this? Um, and I, I, I feel, um, I feel heavily out, out sort of classed by the two, um, the two medical people here and by you, Ryan. So I didn't, I, I know you're not. Wait, a wait a minute. So yeah, the two of you, them. <laughs> 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 I, I, I would even include you, David, since. since Thanks. I'm a well, how about this? You made a point to me earlier today mm -hmm. via te uh, tweet or DM on the, on Twitter about the U.S.-China relationship and what we might hope for from that. The optimal thing that the world needs, this is a global problem, it requires global solutions. Um, and as Kavita and Craig in different ways sort of demonstrated, uh, you know, uh, first of all, Craig's point about it taking off in other parts of the world, Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, wherever it might be, that affects us and that and raises the danger of um, it coming back to us. It also uh, increases the likelihood that the global economy won't restart. Um, so we need a global solution to this. And no global solution can happen without the G2. People talk about the G20, but the G20 is nothing if the G2 aren't, aren't collaborating. So China and the United States need to uh, to, to collaborate. They need to um, signal that they are working together on medical solutions, including vaccines, but also um, in terms of preventing protectionism, preventing export controls, not just on medicines, um, but on essential foodstuffs, governments tend to panic, particularly in emerging markets. Um, they then tend to hoard. Uh, and then you get beggar than by neighbor, and then it gets uh, into a spiral, and, which makes everything worse. The only possible way of addressing this is at the global level um, uh, with China and, and the United States. I have to say, though, you know, given the sort of state of rhetoric, which is probably the lowest, the most hostile it's been, since the US and China normalized relations in 1979, um, I don't see much likelihood of this. Um, Trump is gonna run on a, or at least partly run on, uh, um, on, on a Beijing Biden campaign. And Xi Jinping is, is an extremely brittle leader and he needs nationalism now. China turns, China, China leadership traditionally turns to nationalism when it's feeling vulnerable with its population. So the chances of this happening are slim to vanishing, unfortunately, but it needs to happen without, with or without the US and China. And, you know, I, I hope that some others, the Macrons and the Trudeaus 
and possibly even the Modis of this world, not that I'm a fan, um, uh, can find other ways of working together and setting an example. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it certainly doesn't look likely with the United States if the newly promoted chief spokesperson of the chief agency responsible for dealing with this is alleging that Chinese people eat anteater assholes. You know, I mean, that's 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 where the rhetoric is at yeah. the moment. So, yeah. uh, what's it called? The Dallas, the Dallas, what? Um, the oh, the Labradoodle breeding. That's yeah, that's the, somebody else. The Dallas Labradoodles, but it's it's not even cats. I mean, cats we know can can actually get the virus, but dogs can't. <laughs> so even that expertise is useless. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Was, Thank you. I just wanted to make one very charitable. One profound point. That was really profound. Ryan, you have the last minute here. (laughs) This is done on Zoom, so I can tell you, as Ryan is preparing to speak, that he's shaking his head right now. Go ahead. (laughs) No, I was just going to maybe say one uh, comment in terms of trying to think of future-oriented prescriptions that brings us back full circle to Craig. Um, when he had spoken about the WHO and a recent piece that he wrote in USA Today titled Build World Health Organization, Don't Tear It Down, which is how to try to build the architecture of these international organizations to deal with the global uh, nature of these pandemics. And I, and, and I just want to maybe say one thing, which is not just because it will you know, blow back to the United States, but because these are you know, human lives that are just the enormity of what is about to maybe happen in the developing world compared to even the United States is uh, chilling. And just in terms of what it could be a prescription for building up the WHO, there's something notable that Australia, I guess, is proposing this idea of on-site inspections in the future, that there will actually be something like a requirement that states allow in inspectors. Who knows how it will take off? And they might, they have also apparently are proposing it as maybe building a separate body because you'd otherwise have to get all the WHO member states to sign on to that. But some kind of innovative thinking about maybe ways in which we could empower the WHO because some of the ways in which they didn't work this time around as well as they could have is because they don't have those functions uh, built in. And maybe this is an opportunity for us thinking for future pandemics and situations or wave two, uh, what could be done. Well, thank you for that. Um, you know, these are challenging times on so many levels, and the ability to get together people with the kind of perspectives that you've heard here, uh, frontline perspectives, uh, frontline than the policy uh, area perspectives, uh, uh, people who are able to step back and see the global as well as the local, uh, is really unusual. And I think that we are extremely fortunate. Uh, that we've been able to have this group together. We're going to try to do that uh, every time we get together, two to three times a week over the next few weeks. We've also got a number of very, very senior level uh, political figures who will be coming in for one-on-ones as we try to uh, rise to the mission here. And in May, we'll actually start uh, to introduce a series of interactive Zoom forums that people can subscribe to and, and pose questions to the experts directly themselves. Of course, our members will have first shot at that. So if you want to become a member, go to the dsrnetwork.com uh, because uh, we're going to be doing that. We've got a couple of other things where membership's going to uh, really uh, get you in the front of the line and, and spaces will be limited. So I'd encourage you to go there. You'll also find there other uh, uh, updates on, on, on our, our uh, podcasts and on things we've written. In the meantime, 
uh, please join me in thanking Dr. Craig Spencer, Dr. Kavita Patel, Ed Luce, uh, Ryan Goodman. All of you folks are doing great and really important work. We are very grateful for it and hope that we'll be able to get you back here sometime soon. Thank you very much.